like to introduce somebody who has been a very special brother to me. Uh, he has been personally mentoring. I'm 55 years old. He's 50 years old, so I'm a little older than him. But he has been mentoring me. He has been sharpening me. And not only me, my sons, TJ and AJ, and with other ministers that uh, are with our Living Word family. And we are just so thankful uh, for his life. We are thankful for the service that he has been uh, giving to us. And today he will be serving us again. So without much ado, let us all welcome in our midst, Pastor Tim Carnes. Let's give the Lord a big hand, please. Uh, before we go to God's word this morning, uh, let us ask him to bless it and encourage us through it. Oh Lord, we are so grateful. You have richly blessed us. We've been singing about the greatest blessing of all, the gift of your Son. For him we are so grateful. And Jesus, you are enough. And I would ask that you would fill our hearts with that truth this morning and move and motivate us by your Spirit to be content in you and to desire to live for you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as we introduce the uh, topic this morning, I'd like to have you imagine yourself going back in time, going back in time, say, 130 years, and I'd like you to imagine that you are on a ship, a ship that is traveling from the eastern United States to Europe, and I would like you just to imagine yourself sitting out on the deck of the ship, and you're feeling the cool ocean breeze, the sun is out, it's a beautiful day. Can you picture yourself there? Can you feel that, that breeze as you're relaxing there? Well, as you're relaxing on the deck, you notice a man who's standing at the railing, and he's looking out over the water. And you notice that this man is crying. And at the same time, he, as he's weeping, he looks in the water, and at times he looks down and he's writing something on a pad of paper. And he's doing this for several minutes as you are watching him, and then he turns and notices you, uh, and he asks if you would like to sit down and talk with him. Now, at first, you're a little embarrassed, right? He caught you uh, staring at him, but his gentle manner and his warm face, they, they just seem to invite you there. So you said yes, and you sit down with this man, and you begin to talk with him. And, and he says, uh, as you can see, I, I, I'm grieving. Uh, I've been through some very difficult times. And he begins to tell you about the fact that a few years earlier, he had lost his four-year-old son to scarlet fever. And then he says, not long after that, there was a large fire in Chicago, the Great Fire of 1871, and that destroyed much of his property and much of his uh, finances. And that's when he pauses. Uh, he begins to speak a little more softly. His tears begin to flow down his face again, and he, and he says, but... But that's not the worst of it. For you see, not long ago, my wife and daughters were sailing on a ship like this one to Europe from the United States. And their ship was struck by another ship. And it went down. And that's when he stops. His voice is almost a whisper now when he says, I received a, a telegram from my wife and it said, Save the loan. What shall I do? And that's when he tells you, friend, I lost my four daughters that day. 
they drown in the ocean. Well, you sit there, you, what can you say? There's a lump in your throat, you, you're just so sorrowful for this man. You hadn't noticed, but while you were speaking, the ship had been slowing down and the captain had been approaching. And he comes, comes up to you and the man that you're with, and he tells the man, Sir, this is where we think your family's ship went down. And so the ship you're on has stopped at this point, and the captain uh, brings the man over to the railing so that he could look at, over the waters where his daughters drowned. Before he gets up to leave, he says to you, Friend, I know my daughters are not down there. They're safe, the dear lambs. And with that, he gets up and goes over to the railing. Now, this whole time, you're curious as to what in the world this man was writing. And when he gets up, he left his pad of paper on the chair next to you. And so you look down and pick up the pad of paper, and on it you read these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You see, the man who wrote that wonderful hymn was named Horatio Spafford. And he wrote that hymn not during a time of great blessing, not during a time of wonderful joy in his life. He wrote that hymn in the worst of times. You see, he wasn't sitting behind a nice piano when he came up with that song. He wasn't within a, 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 warm or, or a cool, comfortable room with with uh, beautiful scenery around him when he wrote that hymn. He forged that song over the watery graves of his four girls. And you know, as I read the history of this incredible hymn, it's one of the greatest hymns, I think, that has been written in church history. And as I read it, I, I wondered at the fact that how could a man who had suffered so much and in the middle of that tragedy write a song that is so powerful, so encouraging, so moving, and so displaying the trust in the Lord Jesus? I thought of Job. He is another who lost even more than Horatio Spafford. And here is a man who said when he had lost everything, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do these reactions seem unusual to you? Do they seem impossible to you? Do you ever wonder, how could I respond in that way if a tragedy like that struck me? How could I see life the way they saw it? The famous reformer Martin Luther, he faced many hardships in his life. And one of the things he would often do is run to the Psalms whenever he faced these difficulties. In fact, he was known as saying often when he was greatly depressed, come let us sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. That Psalm was one of his favorites, Psalm 46. In fact, uh, are you familiar with the, his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? That hymn is based upon Psalm 46. And so this morning, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 46, where we are going to find from this psalm comfort in the midst of difficult times. Comfort in the midst of difficult times. And I would ask that as I read this wonderful psalm, if you would please stand in, in honor of God's Word. Psalm 46. It says this, For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to the Alamoth, a song 
God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolation in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Give us insight now by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. So the title of this psalm tells us that it was written by a group called the Sons of Korah. These were uh, the singers, the musicians who would lead in temple worship. Their ancestors were appointed a number of years earlier by King David. And notice the title says that it is also a song. This psalm was a poem intended to be sung by God's people. We aren't given the specific time as to when this song was written explicitly, but when we look at this psalm in detail as we move forward, we will see that it, it does surround events regarding a, a great enemy in battle that has come upon the people of Jerusalem. Many scholars believe that this psalm was written during the time of King Hezekiah when the Assyrian army had surrounded the city of Jerusalem ready to destroy it. Notice, too, that this psalm is divided into three stanzas, each stanza ending with the word Salah. That word likely is a, uh, gives the idea of a, a pause, or a, perhaps a, when music is playing, to stop the music so that the hearers could think about and meditate upon the words they had just sung. We see here a Salah at the end of each stanza. And each stanza is focused on one particular theme, that God is our refuge. He is our stronghold. He is our place of protection. In fact, notice the second and third stanzas end with the same phrase, the Lord, the God of hosts is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. This poem begins and ends with the truth of God being our refuge and our strength. And so this poem cries out all through it that God is our refuge from our enemies, that God is our refuge from judgment. He is our refuge from danger. He is our refuge from distress. The sons of Korah make it clear here that, that God is the one we must run to in times of trouble, that God is the one that is our shelter in the storms of life, that God is the one who is our refuge from the troubles that we face, that God is the one who is our castle against enemy forces. And that God is the one who Martin Luther says is a mighty fortress. Brothers and sisters, the message of this psalm is simply this. Take comfort in God our refuge. Take comfort in God our refuge. And here in the text, this psalm shows us three ways to find comfort in God our refuge during difficult times. Three ways to find comfort in God our refuge 
during difficult times. And the first way is given in stanza, the first stanza, verses 1 through 3. And that is to take comfort in God's presence. Take comfort in God's presence. The psalm begins with the declaration, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. That word refuge, God is a refuge, indicates that He is a a protection, a shelter from distress. It, It emphasizes our helplessness, our inability to protect ourselves. In fact, uh, we just heard some thunder, did we not? There's some a lightning storm, and we've had a lightning here several times this week. Now, how many of you during a lightning storm will rush outside and, and stand in a puddle of water to watch the lightning? Especially when it's really close. Do you do that? Why not? I remember uh, a time, and I lived in the Northwest with my wife in, in a state called Idaho in, um, in the U.S., and there were several lightning storms during the summertime, similar to here. And we, were, we, we love to watch the uh, lightning storms and listen to the thunder. It just reminds us of those scriptures that talk about God thundering. And uh, well, we were watching this particular storm sitting outside on our back porch. And right in the middle of this storm, there's a loud bang! Like less than 20 meters away from us, a lightning bolt had struck a metal structure. And it was so loud, my wife and I immediately got up and we went inside. (laughs) We did not want to be any closer to that. Now, why did we do that? To seek refuge, right? We could not protect ourselves out in the middle of that storm. Only our house could serve as protection. And it is the same with God. Only in Him can we find protection and refuge. David expressed this idea of being God being a refuge in Psalm 37, verse 40, when he says, The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. And notice here in Psalm 46, verse 1, it says, God is our refuge and strength. Now, that word strength is an important word because it not only means a a power for defense, but also a a power and and an inward strengthening. The word carries this idea that not only does God uh, protect us, but He also strengthens us from within when we face difficult times. David said in Psalm 28, verse 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. And did you notice as well in verse 1, God makes Himself available as a refuge all the time. All the time. You see, when trials come, He's not far away. When difficulties arise, He is ready to be found. In times of distress, in times of great fear, in times of of great discouragement, God is, brothers and sisters, God is present. He is there. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to question. Even if it doesn't feel like He is there, This psalm declares with certainty and emphasis, God is always present. He is a very present help in time of trouble. He is always available, always ready, always there. In fact, notice that word very, a very present help. The NIV translation says, God is an ever-present help in trouble. Ever-present. Always available. Is that not a great comfort? Is that not a comfort? 
We don't have to wonder where he is when we're going through struggles. We don't have to question if God even sees or if he cares. We don't have to think about or doubt, is is he really listening to me? Does he see what's going on in my life or is he busy somewhere else? God is a very present, always present help in trouble. And that presence will give us a great confidence. In fact, that's exactly what we see with the response of the psalmist here. Look at verse 2 with me. Notice that it says here, because God is a very present help in trouble, the psalmist says, therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, though the mountains should slip into the sea. Do you know what he's describing here? He's expressing this confidence in the midst of a great natural disaster. He's he's talking about the, the mountains falling into the sea. Now, where I come from in the U.S., in the state of California, Southern California, you don't have to explain what he's talking about here. In fact, you are very familiar with it yourselves, right? Earthquakes? You had one here just a few years ago, did you not? I was just in Davao last week uh, during the 6.8 magnitude earthquake that we had there. Back in 1994... In the month of January, my family lived about two kilometers away from the epicenter of a large earthquake in Southern California. It was a 6.8 or 6.9 magnitude earthquake. And it was so powerful that as I was going down the hallway to get one of my children, I could not even go straight because it was throwing me from this wall to this wall to this wall. Things were flying off of the shelves and hitting us. Never felt anything like it. And I have to admit, in that moment, I was afraid. It was scary. Now imagine here, he's describing an earthquake that is so massive, that is so powerful, that actually the, imagine if the hills here just, if we all slipped into the ocean, it was so great that that the entire earth just dropped. That's the picture here. And then he he describes here in verse 3, the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake at their swelling pride. Do you know what he's describing? What often happens here after a great earthquake? The ocean comes back, doesn't it? A tsunami is what he's picturing here. First a large earthquake and then the ocean and the waves and the, the waters are roaring and the waves are so high that if the mountains had emotion, they would be afraid. So he's describing here this this natural catastrophe of epic proportions. He's painting a picture for us. And what he's saying here is that even if all of this happened, even if the earth moved away, it it shook and, and disappeared and the ocean came back upon us, he said, we will not fear. Why? Is he crazy? Has he lost his mind? Or is it that he believes and recognizes God is his refuge. And when God is your refuge, nothing can happen to you unless he allows it. The first stanza of this poem is emphatic. In fact, the text here, if I were to translate it more literally in Hebrew, it would be this idea of let its waters roar, let them foam, let the mountains quake, let these disasters come. We will not be afraid because God is our refuge. And He is our strength. You know, during tragedies, people often say, where is God? 
Well, we have the answer here, don't we? For his people, he is here as a shelter and a refuge. So take comfort in God's presence. Cry out for help. He is an ever-present help in time of trouble. Did we not see that from the Lord Jesus Christ when he was walking upon the earth? Did we not see that? How did he respond to lepers and the blind and the lame and the sick and the discouraged, the poor, the needy? How did Jesus respond when they approached him? Well, I don't have time for you right now. I'm busy. I have more important things to do. Is that what he said? Is that what he did? He welcomed them, didn't he? Did he not even, as we've been talking about, seek them out? He is full of compassion. He is full of mercy. He is a refuge. God does care. Now notice at the end of verse 3, that word salah. Stop and take a moment to reflect on this. Take comfort in God's presence. A second way to find comfort in God during difficult times is in verses 4 to 7. And here we see, take comfort in God's protection. Not only are we to find comfort in His presence, but also in His protection. Let me read verse 4 again to you. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. Quite a contrast here, isn't it? The first stanza depicts this scene. It paints a picture of this turbulence and disaster and chaos and noise. And then here in verse 4, these quiet streams flowing through Jerusalem. Why the contrast? What's the author doing here? Why is it so peaceful and calm now? Well, notice verse 5. God is in the midst of her. That's why. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. But he raised his voice. And the earth melted. See, attention now is focused here on God being in their presence in the city. The great city, Jerusalem. And the psalmist is speaking here that because God is there, and there's this threat that exists around them, the nations are roaring, the picture of an enemy army that we'll see in a little bit, that, that they are, even though they are surrounded, that God is in the midst of her, and so it is like this peaceful sitting in the fields next to the streams, because God is there. Here in verses 5 and 6, we're given a clue as to the circumstances of what was happening. Again, there seems to be a, a nations surrounding them. And, and notice it says, God will help her when morning dawns. That He is her protection. That really the city is made safe here, not by a human army, but by the God of armies. And like the roar of the sea in verse 3, the, the nations here are roaring against Jerusalem against God's people, but then God roars, and they're dealt with. Now, some of you may be thinking at this point, okay, we're talking about a psalm that is written maybe 2,700 years ago. It's written in a time an ancient Near East, thousands of kilometers away, and it's describing a situation when the people are surrounded by some great enemy, and they're about to be destroyed, and what does it have to do with me? 
What does it have to do with us? There's no large army surrounding the church here, at least not that I can tell. I mean, look out the windows, you'll see that. Well, don't look out the windows right now. Pay attention to me. But if you would look out the windows, you would, we would not see this large 185,000-person army. There's no great threat to our lives at this very moment. So how then does this psalm apply to us? Well, let me ask you this. Are there not events in your life that bring distress? Are there not circumstances and situations in your life that are times of trouble? Do we not have a great enemy that seeks to devour us, prowling about like a roaring lion? Do we not encounter sickness? Do we not encounter conflict and difficulty? Do we not encounter the sins of others in our lives? We do, right? We do face challenges and trials and difficulties. And brothers and sisters, in those times, where do you go for help? Where do you seek refuge? Do you seek refuge in something that will not last, that will not help? I mean, think about in a lightning storm. That lightning storm hits when my wife and I ran into the house. We didn't go grab an umbrella and then come back outside. Okay, I'm safe now. Now I can watch the storm. That would be foolish. Would that umbrella serve as a good protection? I hope you're saying no. And yet how often do we run to umbrellas instead of the only refuge, the only one that can protect us? Beloved, there's no circumstance. There is no power, no person, no natural disaster, no being, no entity. Nothing is able to do anything to you unless the Father allows it. Nothing. He is in control and He has all power. Listen to what David, uh, I believe David said in Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. In verse 5, from my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Romans 8.35, you know these words. Paul said, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And he says, for I am convinced... He has the confidence of the psalmist here. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from what? The love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think most of us are familiar with these words, are we not? Is this the first time you've seen this passage? Probably not for most of you. And yet, do we rely on them? Do we believe them to be true? Do we trust in them, especially in those difficult times? Do we trust in the fact that God is our protection? You know, it reminds me of a time when um, I was, I don't know, nine or ten years old. And I lived with my grandparents. I grew up with them. We were on a farm. Uh, we lived in Central California. 
And I remember one night my grandparents had uh, something to do, and so they left me actually in the house alone. And I remember I was sitting in the living room uh, reading, I think, and while I'm sitting there, I, I noticed something in the window. The curtains were closed, but I see the shadow of a man walking across the window and then walking back. And he did this a few times, and I'm like, ah, I was terrified. Well, what am I going to do? And I didn't even think to call. I just was, I froze in fear. And the man stood there, and then he went away. Well, a few minutes later, I mean, I'm still sitting there just shaking. I hear the front door open, ah, and it's my grandfather. And at that moment, my fear went away. My grandpa was, a, my Lolo was a tough man, and I knew he would take care of whoever was outside. I felt that protection. How much more so can we take comfort in God's protection? He's the ultimate Lolo. I mean, he's the, the power, ultimate power. Nothing can touch you unless he allows it. And we see the great truth declared that we need not fear anyone or anything because look at verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. The word host there can, can refer to the heavenly host, the sun, the moon, and the stars, but it can also refer to, as it is here, the armies of heaven that at God's command are millions of angels. And it says here that that same God who commands the forces of millions of powerful beings, He is with us. He is with us. He is with us. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Again, notice the Salah. Take a moment. Meditate on that truth. The Almighty God is with His people. He is our protection. Not only can we take comfort in God's presence and take comfort in His protection, but we can take comfort, the psalm says, in His providence. Take comfort in God's providence. Look again with me at verse 8. The psalmist says there, Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Notice that second word there in verse 8, Behold. That's a, like a big neon sign, the Hebrew word there, Hene. It means to look at this. Stop and pay attention. Consider what I'm about to say. And he focuses attention here on the works of the Lord. There's an emphasis on God's sovereignty in these verses. Speaking here of that it is God who brings desolations in the earth. And the context here is the, uh, in a war. He is the one that decides the outcome. He is the one who ends wars. Human armies don't end wars. Truces don't end wars. The signing of a... Of a a peace treaty does not end wars. Who is it that ultimately ends wars? It's the God of the universe. Notice the imagery here at the end of verse 9. God breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots. I think in today's language we might say something like, He's the one who breaks apart the M16s. He dismantles nuclear warheads. He burns the tanks with fire. 
This shows us a picture again that we're, this psalm is written in the midst of or following a fierce battle. And these all describe that who is ultimately in control of weapons? Is it the one holding the weapon? No, it is God who is in control. Daniel 2.21 says, It is he who changes the times and the epochs or eras. He removes kings and establishes kings. Daniel 4.35, But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? These verses and many others describe that God is the one who is sovereign over the affairs of mankind. In fact, who is it that raised Assyria up? Who is it that then raised up Babylon and then Persia and then Greece and then Rome? And who is the one who brought them down? God is the one. He is the one who raised up Russia and Germany and China. Britain, the United States, the Philippines. God is the one who has raised these nations up and it's up to Him and He will determine if or when He will take them down. He raises up kings, takes them down. He raises up princes and rulers, nation after nation. God raises them up and God takes them down because He is the one who is sovereign over the affairs of men. Psalm 135 verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Or Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. So Psalm 46 reminds us here vividly that, that God is the one who decides the outcome of things. Even wars. The enemy nation that had come upon Israel, it was ready to destroy them. God would decide the outcome of that. And in this case, the psalm tells us He protected them. And that's why He says this in verse 10. Look there with me. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This is the response that God tells us to have in the midst of trials. The whole poem has been aiming at these very words. This is the message of this psalm. Cease striving, relax, be still, and know this. Know that I am God. Now, did you notice there's a change here in pronouns? Up to this point, the psalm, when it referred to God, would say he. But now, notice in verse 10, it says, I. Who's speaking here directly? God Himself, right? Before it was the psalmist who was speaking. Now God interjects and says, See striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. Why, why did He do that? Why did God insert Himself here and speak directly? I think again to emphasize the point. This is what the psalm is all about. This is what the poet has been building us towards in the first nine verses. That knowing that, that God is always present, knowing that God is the ultimate protection, knowing that God is providentially in control of all things, cease striving. Relax. Let it go. Don't worry. Don't fret. Don't be anxious. Stop trying to fix it yourself. And let God handle it. 
God says, no, I'm the one in control, so, so stop striving. He says, I am the only all-powerful king in creation. I am the one who is sovereign. So brothers and sisters, listen to God here. If you're going through a trial right now, listen to what he's telling you. Relax. Now that doesn't mean just ignore it and, okay, God's got it handled. I'm just going to not worry about it anymore and it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. Yes, I know my my child's in the hospital and I don't know if they're going to live, but oh well. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is, will you trust me with your child? Relax. I know what I'm doing. I'm in control, and I am here. We can learn from our brother, King Hezekiah, uh, his example. In fact, turn over to Isaiah 36 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 36. As I mentioned earlier, it's very likely that the events surrounding the, the writing of this psalm were a time when the Assyrian army had marched through uh, the land of Judah and had come upon Jerusalem, was surrounding Jerusalem. They had already defeated the northern tribes of Israel. They had defeated Egypt. They had destroyed all of the enemies around them. And now they were making their way through Judah. 185,000 men were camped outside of the gates of Jerusalem. These were ruthless, wicked, strong, and an imposing army. And so the Assyrian king, he wanted to minimize his losses, and so he sent a messenger to Hezekiah and the people to just say, hey, you know what, you need to surrender. Notice what the message says in Isaiah 36, verse 18. The messenger says, Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? You know what he's saying here? He's saying, You know what? We've conquered many nations, all nations around you, and none of their gods were able to help, so your God can't help either. So don't listen to Hezekiah if he tells you to trust in Yahweh. We're going to destroy you. You're done. Give up. There's no hope. And they had destroyed everyone around them. So put yourself in Hezekiah's shoes. Here's the king. He's responsible for all these people in the city of Jerusalem. What does he do? Well, look in chapter 37, verse 14. Look at his response. Then Hezekiah, verse 14, took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You see how he's relying on God's providence here? You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, and all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Do you see what Hezekiah did here? In the face of overwhelming odds, there was no way they were going to 
defeat the Assyrian army. They faced this ruthless force, this powerful force. And notice here, Hezekiah, he didn't despair. He didn't fret. He didn't worry. He didn't run to, to his phone and call his therapist and say, I, I, we're in trouble. I don't know what to do. Do, do. do you have something for me? What does Hezekiah do? He takes the message and immediately runs to the temple and lays it out before the Lord and says, Lord, do something. Only you can deal with this. We have nowhere else to go. We have no one else to turn to. He took refuge in God and God alone. He took comfort in the providence of God. Verse 36 says that that 185,000-man army camped outside Jerusalem that was destroyed in one night by the angel of the Lord. God heard his prayer and answered it. Our sovereign God is in control. You know, everything that happens in our lives is really out of our hands, ultimately. I learned this lesson powerfully after a... Remember that earthquake I mentioned earlier that uh, my family had been through in 1994? We had two of our two children with us, and uh, we were in a one-apartment, uh, one-bedroom apartment. And the earthquake happened in the middle of the night, and so we uh, we went outside and stayed in the car because I didn't know how safe it was to stay in the apartment we were in. And um, we came back in the morning to look and see what had happened and to see the damage. And so as we were looking around in the apartment, I made my way into our bedroom, which is where our oldest was sleeping. We had her sleeping in a playpen in the closet. Um, in our room. And when I looked down into her playpen, I got sick to my stomach. Because as I looked into that playpen, what I saw, I saw a toolbox full of tools that had fallen from the shelf above. I saw a large fan that was also on that same shelf that had fallen. And as I looked into the playpen, I saw that fallen all around her that there was a shape of where she had been sleeping where there was nothing there. None of those tools had hit her. I was foolish. You never put stuff on the shelf, especially above where your child is sleeping. And yet God in His providence and in His kindness preserved the life of my little girl that day despite the fact of what I had done. God is in control, and thankfully, He's a good and kind God. He's a powerful God. He's able to deal with that difficult situation you have at work. He is able to deal with the strife that is in your home. He is able to change the heart of your rebellious child. He is able to heal and remove that sickness or that tumor from you. He is able to change the heart of your husband or your wife. He's able to do anything, amen? We sang about that earlier. It's true. It is true. Now, I know it, it is very hard and difficult to understand. Well, why then did God allow it to happen in the first place? Why did He let this situation take place in my life? Why the suffering? If God can fix it, why didn't He just prevent it? Um, Author Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite authors, he struggled with this very issue. He lost his wife to cancer. 
and he wondered why. And he wrote his answer in a book called Trusting God, one of my favorite books, highly recommend it. Listen to what he said. I knew the truth regarding God's sovereignty. What I had to decide to do was decide if I would trust Him, even when my heart ached. I will say this next statement as gently and compassionately as I know how. Our first priority in times of adversity is to honor and glorify God by trusting Him. We tend to make our first priority the gaining of relief from our feelings of heartache or disappointment or frustration. This is a natural desire, and God has promised to give us grace sufficient for our trials and peace for our anxieties. But just as God's will is to take precedence over our will, so God's honor is to take precedence over our feelings. We honor God by choosing to trust Him when we don't understand what He is doing or why He has allowed some adverse circumstance to occur. Right? Bridges has it right. The issue isn't whether God is with us. The issue isn't whether God cares. The issue isn't whether God is in control. The issue isn't whether God knows what He is doing. This is the issue. Do you trust Him? Can you cease striving and know that He is God? Brothers and sisters, calamity will strike you. The question is, how will you respond? Where will you turn first when calamity strikes? Is God your first response or your last resort? What will you do when the trial comes? Will you ignore it? Just pretend it isn't there? Some of us respond that way. When that difficulty arises, will you, will you just try to rely on your own strength to make it, to get through? Or will you be paralyzed by it and despair? Or will you turn to something else like alcohol or drugs or food or entertainment or sex or fill in the blank? These are simply umbrellas, beloved. They aren't going to protect you. They're not a refuge. In fact, if you pursue any of those things as a refuge, you'll be in worse shape than when you started. Satan has a variety of escapes that he will offer you gladly. He's like the guy on the street corner who opens up his jacket and says, pick any one of these you want. You can have it. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't offer many different escapes. He offers you only one thing. Himself. We sang earlier, Christ is enough. The psalmist asked the question, do you believe that? Will you trust him? Is he enough? Is he your refuge? Cease striving and know that I am God. If you find yourself often when you encounter a trial or difficulty not turning to Jesus Christ, if you Notice that you often do not trust Him, but run to something else. Then my question to you would be, is He truly your Lord and Savior? How can He be your refuge if you don't run to Him? Do you know Him? Do you have a relationship with Him? Have you confessed your sins and put your trust in Him as the only one who can save you? He's the only one who has come and paid for sin. 
First Timothy 1.5 says these wonderful words that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Are there any sinners in here this morning? A couple of you. All of us are, right? We've all sinned, fallen short of His glory. We have all turned aside. There is not one good, not even one. No one does good, not even one. And so Jesus Christ came to seek those people, to seek us, and to offer us salvation, to offer us Himself. The God of the universe who is in control of all things. Son of God became man and came here. What was that song? He breathed the dust of earth for us. Christ is enough. He is our refuge. Have you expressed your desire to turn from your sin and put your trust in Him and Him alone? His death on the cross was payment for sin. If you would just but believe and come to Him. There's no other refuge that's going to protect you. Everything else is an umbrella. Christ Jesus is the rock, the cave, the shelter, the fortress, the stronghold. You will find protection nowhere else. It might seem for a short time you have protection, but nothing else will deliver and protect you. Nothing else will give you eternal life. Only the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our refuge. Romans 8.28 says, We know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We don't know why God does what He does. Often you may not get the answers this side of heaven. But He causes all things to work together for good. So cease striving and know that He is God. You know, when your child comes to you, if they've hurt themselves, say they've got a cut or they've fallen, they've hurt themselves, and, and they come running to you, you may not be able to take away their pain, but you can hold them, right? You can give them comfort. God may allow your pain to continue, but He will hold you. I remember so clearly the day that our youngest was born. You saw a picture of her, the, 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 my daughter who's in a wheelchair. I mentioned to you before that she was born with a severe disability and um, she was not expected to survive birth. And so the moment she was born, the uh, nurses immediately rushed her to the intensive care unit for newborns. And for nine months, this little one had been inside of her mother, listening to her mother's heartbeat, being comforted by her mother's voice, protected. And here, her first day outside of her mother, she is taken to a cold, sterile room, put under a heat lamp on a table, and poked and prodded, tubes being shoved in her, needles being poking her. She was so miserable. She was so agitated and upset. Imagine how you'd feel. You know, and I, I was with her, and I was trying to comfort her, and, and, and I was sitting there, but I wasn't able to do much. She just continued to be upset, and, and that night came. Uh, my wife, Tina, she had, uh, it was a C-section, so she had been recovering from the surgery. She had not yet seen our baby. She came down that night. Uh, they wheeled her down, and 
And it was then that, that I saw something I will never forget. As Tina came there, I, Gabrielle was put in her arms, and Tina spoke to her. And the moment Gabrielle heard her mother's voice, she was at peace. Never seen anything like it. She knew her mama, and she found comfort there. Beloved, this is how it is with our God. You can be in great distress and trouble and pain and suffering and not understand what is going on in your life. You may be agitated, frustrated, fearful, but in the arms of God there is perfect peace. He will hold you and comfort you. He is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. So cease striving and know He is God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what, what comforting words from this psalm that we can find strength and refuge and protection in You. That, Lord, things will happen in our lives. Many times we, we won't understand why. Lord, help us in those moments to focus our attention on You. Lord, so that we could be like Horatio Spafford and say, it is well with my soul, even in the midst of what he lost. So that we could be like Job, who, who said, blessed be the name of the Lord. That You give and You take away, but, but forever You are blessed. Lord, Enable us to trust You no matter what. As we sang earlier, never once have we ever walked alone. You're with Your children. At times, Lord, we confess it, it, it doesn't feel like that. We confess that we wonder if You're there. Sometimes our pain is so great that, that we just don't know. Lord, use the words of this psalm to encourage and remind us you are a very present, always present help in trouble. Lord, I pray for those here who, uh, who do not know that hope, who do not have you as their refuge, that God, today would be the day you would open their eyes, they would see the beauty of Christ, and that he alone is the one who can deliver them, and that he alone is a refuge. Thank you for your great love and faithfulness and kindness towards us. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. What a powerful message that is. It is a message that really needs to be heard. Because oftentimes we forget who our God is. Sometimes we are so focused on our circumstances, we're focused on our difficulties, our adversities, and we lose sight of God. And that is rather unfortunate because the truth of the matter is God is the biggest, the greatest, and the ultimate factor in our lives. If there is something that we need to remind ourselves constantly, 
it is that He is an ever-present help. We need to be reminded that He surrounds us with His providence. We need to be reminded that He is there for us all the time. And this morning, one of the things that we will be reminded of is the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. We will be celebrating the Lord's table. And I would like to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 at this time. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. If there is one thing we do not want to rush, we do not want to rush the celebration of the Lord's table. Because this is the very foundation of our own Christian lives. What is depicted in this particular ordinance is the foundation of our very lives. The truth of the matter is you remove the cross, you remove the blood of Jesus Christ, we really have nothing to talk about. There is really nothing of value and of importance to discuss if you and I remove the cross. That is why in Charles Haddon Spurgeon's sermons, he was very intentional in that whatever topic he preached about, he would always bring it back to the cross. And I believe that when we really think about our own lives, we need to go back to the cross. There will never, ever be a time wherein we will outgrow our need for the gospel. This is where we need to go back. This is home for us. The gospel is home for us. And we need to be reminded what the Lord has done for us. Yesterday, we concluded our Expositors Academy class. And one of the things that we do in those classes is we have our preaching labs, wherein we are allowed to preach our sermons and we are evaluated. And yesterday, it was the turn of our youth pastor, Pastor DJ Barrios. Some of you know him, maybe some of you don't, but of course, our young people know him very well. And he was expounding on Ruth chapter 2 and explaining to us some of the details that are found in the book of Ruth. 
And finally, he began to relate it to the gospel. In the same way that Ruth experienced lavish grace and favor from Boaz, you and I have experienced the same thing. And somehow when he began to remind us of the lavish grace that God has poured out upon our lives, it just hit me so powerfully. And I began to be reminded of what the Lord had done. A few Sundays ago, I talked to you about that paralytic, that man who had been sick for 38 long years. And there was a vast multitude, we are told, in that pool where people were hoping to get healed. And what is really so amazing in that story is that although there was a vast multitude, God singled out one man. And that man He healed. And that to me is a very powerful reminder that at one time, at one moment in our lives, God singled us out. In fact, when He singled us out, it was even before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians chapter 1, we find words that are sometimes too hard to believe for the human mind. It is so difficult to fathom. Words like chosen, elected, predestined. And this somehow makes us understand that left to ourselves, we would not choose God. I recall a pastor who one time was interviewed by somebody and he was asked, are you a seeker-sensitive church? And his answer was very powerful. He said, we need to ask, first of all, the question, who is the seeker? And Brother Oje a while ago explained to us, who is the seeker? God is the seeker. Amen? He is the one who found us. And that is why in John chapter 15, He told the disciples, You did not choose Me, I chose you. And for those of us who have accepted Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, that's our story. And that is why when DJ began to explain that, I was beginning to tear up. Actually, I was about to cry like a baby. I just had to control myself because I did not want to be a distraction and disrupt his, his preaching and maybe spoil his grades. But I was deeply moved in my heart. And even as I began to evaluate his sermon, my voice started to crack. I was tearing up. I was moved. And you know what, brothers and sisters? That is how the Lord's table is supposed to be. 
This is not supposed to be a ritual that we are to perform simply because God has commanded us to do it and it is part of our duty to celebrate the Lord's table. Let me just tell you this. If we celebrate the Lord's table and it does not refresh our hearts and our minds to what our Lord and Master has done for us, it has become a useless ceremony. It has become a useless memorial. Because the intent of the Lord's table is to remind us vividly and powerfully what Christ has done. The bread symbolizes the body of Jesus Christ. It is that body that was nailed to the cross. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, that it was our bodies that were supposed to be nailed to that cross. Not just one time, but every single day of our lives, we were supposed to be nailed to the cross. Every single day. You know why? Because every day we sin. Every single day, our bodies were supposed to be nailed to that cross. But you know what Jesus did? He made a step aside and he volunteered himself. The Bible is very clear. He says he laid down his life. He was not an unwilling victim. No, friends, he willingly offered himself as a sacrifice. So instead of us dying on the cross, he took our place. That's called substitution. And what a wonderful truth that is. Because even if we died a thousand deaths on the cross, that would still not bring us to heaven. For all of us have been stained, soiled, and marred by sin. And there is no way a thousand deaths will be able to pay for what we have done because what we have transgressed is the eternal holiness of God. There's no way any human being can pay for that. And that is why we thank God when we hold on to that piece of bread, remember that. Don't just pick it up and put it in your mouth as if you're having a little snack. Please don't do that. That's not being fair to Jesus. When you hold on to that cup, be reminded that it symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews made it very clear, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There is no forgiveness of sins. Where would you and I end up if not for the blood of Jesus Christ. I would not be here. Tim would not be here. Tina would not be ministering to us. The only reason we stand is we stand by the grace of God. This is the reason 
why we are here, why we sing songs, why there is joy in our hearts, why there is the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. All of that emanates to the cross. And that is why when we hear powerful sermons like what Pastor Tim just shared to us so eloquently and so powerfully, it should just remind us where it all starts. It all begins at the cross. And that is why for those of you here who have not, who do not have a relationship with Christ, if you do not understand the Lord's table, there is no way you can celebrate it together with those who know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And today I appeal to you who do not know Christ. Know this, that you cannot save yourself. Not by your good works can you be saved. Because what God requires in His absolute holiness is a perfect life. And you and I know it is impossible. Salvation is humanly impossible. When Jesus was approached by this rich young ruler and he asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved? At the end of that, what did Jesus say? These things are impossible to men, but with God, all things are possible. Sometimes we use that passage to talk about God's power in our lives, and I feel that we can use that in a general sense. But then again, if you really look at the context, what was Jesus really talking about? He was talking about the matter of salvation because after all, that was the question. And his answer was, with men, these things are impossible, but with God, all things, salvation is possible. So I appeal to you who do not know Christ, the only way you can meaningfully celebrate the Lord's table with us is if you turn over your life to Christ and confess that you are a sinner, that you are in need of grace, and that without the shed blood of Christ, you will be eternally damned. You have to come before Him and say, Lord, I surrender my life to you. Change me into the kind of person you want me to be because the truth of the matter is sanctification is not something we can accomplish either, humanly speaking. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the promise of God is that if you do that, and I, I pray today you do it, if you do that today, if you make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, the promise is you, are, you will be granted eternal life today. Your name will be written in the book of life. So think about that. And maybe where you are right now, you can pray a silent prayer to the Lord and ask Him, Lord, come into my life. Save my soul. Be my Lord and be my Savior. And then 
that will be time wherein you can really celebrate with us this memorial, this memorial, this ordinance that was given to us by God. We celebrate not to obtain grace because we have grace already. We are merely declaring that as a matter of fact. And we are thanking God, thank you, Lord, that we are saved by grace. So we're going to ask the worship team to prepare our hearts. And we will also request our communion servers to please come and help us distribute the elements. And for those of you who have made Jesus as Lord and Savior, please come and please partake of the Lord's elements. And we will pray and thank God for what He has done for us.